0: Coming up on this episode of The Courage to Change, sponsored by LionRock.life.
1: I saved bad grades with lots of red marker on them. I had a collection of World Trade Center things, newspapers announcing the Gulf War, Desert Shield, all these different things. And these things sparked the opposite of whatever joy is. Joy is on the other side of these things. What I realized was like item after item, maybe it was a, a love letter from a girl that I broke up with. And every time I came across them, I saved them, but never read them, that each of these things was almost like an unresolved pain or fear that I had to deal with. Once I recognized that, I was able to confront those feelings and realize that some of them just didn't hurt anymore. And suddenly it was like the chains that bound me to those items like vanished. And it was just like recycle or shred. No problem.
0: Hello, beautiful people. Welcome to the Courage to Change Recovery Podcast. My name is Ashley Lowe Blassingame and I am your host. And today we have an awesome guest, Lee sure. Lee is a certified peer specialist and internationally recognized expert in hoarding disorder and has been at the forefront of developing self-help groups for people with HD. Lee's own complicated relationship with things started at three years old when he began asking people the question, do you have anything that you don't need? The first object he acquired was a lawnmower that he finally gave away at age 43. Throughout his life, he considered himself a collector and an archivist. But As time went on, he found that he was holding on to more and more objects, specifically those with sad memories attached. Soon, his house was filled with World Trade Center memorabilia, newspaper clippings from the Challenger disaster, and letters that he failed to send to loved ones before they passed away. Lee eventually sought the help he needed and went on to develop the Buried in Treasures Workshop Facilitator's Guide with Dr. Randy Frost and co-authored Wrap for Reducing Clutter with Dr. Mary Ellen Copeland. He's delivered his message about hoarding behaviors on CBS Sunday Morning, Scientific American, and the Chicago Tribune, as well as partnered with Stanford University, Columbia University, Smith College, and UCSF. Today, he works with those who struggle with their relationship with things and tries to get people to stop using the word hoarder. This was such an eye-opening episode and I'm really, really grateful that Lee came on and talked to me. It gave me great insight into what it's like for people who struggle with acquiring things. And I learned a lot about How hoarding disorder works, who is susceptible to it, and how people can recover. There are a lot of people struggling with hoarding disorder. I did not know that. I did not know the prevalence of this problem. And given the prevalence, I'm hoping that we all can bring some more empathy and compassion to this group of people. I don't want to give too much away, but I hope you learn as much as I did from my conversation with Lee. So without further ado, I give you. Lee Shore. Let's do this. You're listening to the Courage to Change, a recovery podcast. We're a community of recovering people who have overcome the odds and found the courage to change. Each week, we share stories of recovery from substance abuse, eating disorders, grief and loss, childhood trauma, and other life-changing experiences. Come join us no matter where you are on your recovery journey. Lee, thank you so much for being here.
1: You're welcome. Thank you for having me.
0: So let's start with talking about language around hoarding. You know, to start with, do you
1: refer to
0: yourself as a hoarder?
1: I don't refer to myself as a hoarder Uh, some people do refer to themselves as hoarders because as a part of their recovery it was important to claim that and to say i have this problem and this is what that problem is called and they embrace it and i never challenge anybody on how they self-identify but for myself and when i'm referring to other people with this challenge i use different terms more person first language like a person with hoarding disorder or a person with hd refer to myself as a finder keeper in recovery (laughs) or a space invader in recovery know referring to people's interests You know, they're an archivist, they're they're an upcycler. There's so many reasons why people have what they have and whether or not they see it as a mental health challenge or not, it's really best to find out the language they use. And as a general overall approach, just not using the word hoarder to refer to people with this problem, because it's become a derogatory term. It's the H word for a lot of people. So if we're trying to make connections, that wouldn't be an effective way to do it. I never assume that people are trying to be insulting or offensive when they use the term hoarder. I just assume that they haven't heard an alternative before and they're just using the language they know. So I always see it as an opportunity to educate rather than like a a point of contention. I appreciate the question. And I think that a lot of people listening, this could be the first time they've heard this sort of take on it as well. So, you know, that I think is one of the the powers of a conversation like this is to just kind of invite more people into it that may not have been there.
0: Yeah. There were a couple of things that stood out to me when I was doing research about hoarding disorder, what the d- traits are to diagnose and the prevalence, I found out that there are more people in America with hoarding disorder than there are people with Alzheimer's, which blew my mind. I had no idea that it was so prevalent. I felt like with many disorders, there were a lot of traits that people could relate to. And that it seems like when you meet all the traits for hoarding disorder, what really happened is just an extreme version of things that a lot of us do and experience. What was it like for you? What was your experience with hoarding disorder?
1: I do count myself as being amongst the three to 5% of the people actually globally who struggle with hoarding disorder. Yeah. That's millions and millions of people just in the U S and as you're driving down the street, that means that upwards of one in 20 people that you're driving by has this challenge and i did a little math and it, it's kind of like one in seven households and so you've got that many people that are struggling with the attachments themselves and then you've got the people they're living with who are experiencing that vicariously so it's not just the three to five percent of people that are struggling but also the number of people that are trying to help them for me it wasn't necessarily like oh i have hoarding disorder that wasn't uh, the thing in fact one of my roommates was asked one time like did he think i had a problem and he said no i just thought you were like some creative artistic asshole or something that just brought way <laughs> too much stuff home because everything was an art supply you know right. and First, I was really pissed at that answer. And then I was really kind of proud of him because he put something out in the simplest of terms to say this is what his experience was. So neither of us was seeing it as a diagnosis, just that I was being really inconsiderate. It wasn't until I was married and moved out of that apartment where I had a couple of roommates and into a studio apartment, my wife, after a year that it was apparent that most of the stuff that was in that apartment was actually mine and it was coming with us. And I really wasn't able to let it go. That's when it became sort of apparent that I had more than just like um, an acquiring problem. And hoarding disorder isn't defined by the acquiring, it's defined by the saving behaviors. And it doesn't matter what the stuff is, you know, regardless of value, too much is too much. And that's when I realized I had a problem is when I tried to let things go.
0: Yeah, that was some of the diagnostic criteria that I found was the excessive accumulation and the number of belongings that appear to have... And what I read, it said number of belongings that appear to have limited value except to that person.
1: Right. So that would be... The definition almost like two iterations ago. So in the DSM-5, the Diagnostic Statistic Manual, which was published in 2013, is defined as the item saved uh, regardless of value. And Uh that's something that I think that sort of the the peer experience, we had some influence on that definition because we're saying like, wait, says who? Uh, when it comes to the value. And so you realize, like, if you got a stack, 10-foot stack of gold or lead in front of the door, it's not going to matter to the firefighters who are trying to come in to help you. It really doesn't matter what the stuff is. So we don't want to sort of try to justify it and say, well, that stuff is so valuable. It's like, doesn't matter.
0: So it said that objects that are collected tend to fill the home in a way that the person can't use the space in the way it was intended.
1: Right. And that is still the same. So the idea is that, and I I had some trouble with this originally too, because it's sort of a middle-class diagnosis line there, because it has to do with living space. And not everybody has like extra space. So people that are living in a single room occupancy, you know, a very small apartment studio, everything is living space. So they're very quickly going to appear to have a problem. Whereas somebody who has many, many rooms in their home, it might just take longer. But Basements don't count, attics don't count, garages don't count, storage units don't count, vehicles don't count. So they're saying ultimately what it comes down to is that there's a line that, Most people, when their stuff starts to get in the way of something like showering or cooking or becomes a health and safety hazard, they can look at that and say, it's time for some spring cleaning or I'm going to take care of this tonight. For people with HD, it is often just too painful and too upsetting to do that. The perceived danger of leaving it where it is, is actually not as powerful as the sort of threat of distress over letting it go. Even if you know on some level that you do have a problem and it is causing, a problem. That I think is where it separates someone who just has a lot of stuff to someone who has maybe a need for more help.
0: Something that I, I found was interesting where I looked up the the reasons that we save and there are three reasons, you know, per the interweb we save because things are useful. They have instrumental value. They're sentimental. They remind us of a person or thing that's important, or they have intrinsic value. They make us happy or spark joy. They said people with hoarding disorder save for the same reasons that we all do. But for them, the sentiment for a sentimental object, if they throw that object away, They're losing the memory or if they throw the thing with that sparks joy, intrinsic joy, they'll never get joy again. So there's this it's the same reasons, but an almost, you know, a a dysfunctional take on that. Is, Is that correct?
1: Yeah. So people that do and don't have hoarding disorder tend to save the same categories of things. Totally. Okay. Right. There is that cutoff point where people are able to say, like, my photo album is full, so I gotta let some go. I think it's a pretty tangible, concrete example. Whereas other people would say, I've just got to get another photo album. I've got to keep the doubles, the triples, the ones that are blurry, all of these because there's meaning in there. And I would rather just hold on to it than make a mistake of letting something go, even though I know it's Not necessarily the thing to keep. But I think there's a category that isn't listed. And I haven't really heard people talk about it. And it's really something that was an insight I had just prior to the pandemic, which was that I've saved things and have been more attached to things that spark distress, spark upset. I have actually not had as difficult time letting go of like trophies and positive things, acknowledgments of things I've done right, but more so things that I feel like I've done wrong or that scared me. I have so many archives. One of the things I've saved over time, just every poem I've written, every drawing, but then I keep going and it's like, okay, here's the, from high school, the, the town newspaper listing everybody who graduated and my high school bully is the centerfold. I saved that. I saved thank you cards that I didn't send to relatives before they passed away. I saved bad grades with lots of red marker on them. I had a collection of World Trade Center things, newspapers announcing the Gulf War, Desert Shield, all these different things. And these things sparked the opposite of whatever joy is. Joy is on the other side of these things. What I realized was, like item after item, maybe it was a you know a love letter from a girl that I broke up with. And every time I came across them, I saved them but never read them. That each of these things was almost like an unresolved pain or fear that I had to deal with. Once I recognized that, I was able to confront those feelings and realize that some of them just didn't hurt anymore. And suddenly it was like the chains that bound me to those items like vanished. And it was just like recycle or shred, no problem. I realized that. And suddenly I was selling the the items that were parts of my trauma trophies, basically. And it also led to me not saving things that would someday represent these things. And so, and it was a very fortunate insight to have prior to the pandemic, because I know that if I hadn't had it, I would have been collecting like bins of Dr. Fauci bobbleheads. <laughs> um, every, you know, letter that came from my mortgage company saying if you can't pay it now let us know i would have had all of those everything so instead of saving those things and it was a really conscious effort not to i either took pictures of things or I journaled about it. And during the pandemic, that was the first time I had journaled in years. It was a different way of of capturing these grim milestones. I can still hear the evening news, another grim milestone reached 100,000, 200,000. Those were pages in my journal instead of newspapers on the floor.
0: That's a point of view that I, I hadn't considered, but it makes total sense. It's unresolved. It's still there. You know, We think that if we just ignore things or we push them down, they go away because that's the experience momentarily. But the reality is it finds a way to reappear in our lives, whether that's through a thing or an emotion or a situation or whatever it is. And this is just another perfect example of that. I want to discuss the more flashy, so to speak, aspects of hoarding disorder. And maybe you can talk a little bit about your experience, where the outcome of the unresolved, the, the desire to keep those emotions is in one way, shape, or form, an unlivable space that either is unlivable to you or someone else in your house or causes damage in terms of danger, fire, etc.
1: We've seen that when there's a forced clean out, that individuals will tend to fill their home right back up. Um, That in three to six months, there's actually more than there was. And this is after you've got People's hearts have been broken. Maybe you've had trust broken, potentially tens of thousands of dollars spent by an individual, but more likely by a municipality. You've got a really horrendous outcome on the way to probably another horrendous outcome. And it becomes a, a chronic cycle of forced cleanup, fill up, forced cleanup, fill up, because there isn't any recovery explored in between scenarios. And sometimes that does have to happen because the health and safety hazards are so great and immediate. But more often than not, it's possible for people that are about to be evicted to request a reasonable accommodation through the Fair Housing Act. People with HD are a protected class. And more often than not with support and demonstrating that this is not a lifestyle choice. This is something I need help with and I want to work on it, that they can be given more time to work on the really basic harm reduction aspects of this, making the path through the home three feet wide, being able to open doors all the way. Uh, It's not about the way you decorate. It's not about the way you feel about your things. It's your potential to... Move them in such a way that your environment is safe again. And there are objective, reasonable ways to measure that. The number one goal of health inspectors is to help people stay in their homes. There's a a big stigma against like the person with the clipboard that shows up that they're there like a stormtrooper to kick people out. It's not the case. And it's a really painful experience for everyone involved, but you know, the clutter is what is quote unquote, good for TV. That's what keeps people coming back. But so do stories of positivity and recovery. And we believe that there's a huge market out there for those kinds of things. It has raised awareness, but it's the classic double-edged sword where it's negative awareness. In one hand, yes, it's been given a name and attention, but the attention that's been given actually creates a wedge between the people that need the help and the help that's available.
0: Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I think, like you said, double-edged sword, although dealing with this with addiction, generally, I think that what I see is that people get curious and then over time, the narrative changes. But the original narrative has to be negative because that's, again, the flashy, that's what sells. And I read that a, there's a 90% recidivism rate for a forced clean out when there's no mental health care attached. These are the kinds of things that I talk about, that we talk about all the time with addiction when people... It's it's detox. You send them to detox, you get it all out, and then they, They don't know what to do with themselves because guess what? There was a reason it was happening in the first place. It's the same concept, I think, where people get really curious. And I have to, you know, be super honest with you: is that I've watched that show and I find it fascinating. The ones I find most fascinating have to do with the objects like urine and feces or or trash that people hold on to. Because even though the animals, it's it's really tough. I get it. The animal, like I can understand the compulsion to just have all the Love and want to save, and like I can, like my brain can make that connection of it's gone too far. But it is this. What I don't understand is when people are hoarding things that not even have no value, but like that truly have no value. if, If that makes sense, like it's it's literally garbage. Can you talk a little bit about about that? Is that just part of the
1: spectrum? I think it's maybe part of the the misunderstanding in a way because we don't know. For one, if those things are actually, if people actually want to hold on to those things. Mm, So the audience will be led to believe that everything in that home is of equal value to the person living there and that they have an equal hard time letting any of it go. When we're confronted with do this or else, we might actually revert to behavior that's even more self harming. You're not the boss of me. Like, don't take anything. A different approach might have led to somebody having a different response. Like, I, I'm not able to make it to the bathroom because of a physical mobility issue. So actually, I would appreciate some help cleaning those things out. I don't like it either. They don't stop long enough to have those conversations on TV. They often don't have them in real life either there was someone i was working with and i was warned like this person has jars and bottles and buckets of of you know human waste like in her apartment and it's really terrible and this and that it turned out that she needed hip surgery and it was the best she could do to use these receptacles because in her view it was better than soiling herself and the chair she was in that she couldn't get out of quickly enough oh, God, was that such breaks a- my heart. i know and there was such a shame in that when i sat there talking to to her about it. And it was a very uncomfortable physical situation for me. Very, very uncomfortable. I have to remind myself, like, I'm leaving shortly. This person lives here. I can give them the dignity of staying long enough to do what I can to help them out because she didn't want it there either she was she was upset by that. but that's the way I was introduced to her before I met her. Be aware. I wasn't told be aware she's a she's a poet, she's a musician. She's, you know, her family goes back many generations here, really rich personal history, all this stuff. I had to work a little to get to those aspects of her life, because those weren't the immediate concern. That's not why I was sent there. But connecting through those shared interests led us to have these conversations that were like, so tell me what contributes to your sense of self here? What is a part of your art, your music, your creativity and self-expression? How about these items here? I understand that, you know, this is a concern and it Turned out it was really a physical thing. There were accommodations offered, such as having a commode in her living room that she could get up and use it. And she just said it would be too shameful. And you sit there and you're like having it in a reasonably safe commode versus on the floor in jars that are tipping over and things like that there are certain things that are just like, we're not going to resolve this in an afternoon. This is decades of pain that we're looking at. We start the conversation. And I think we have to advocate for enough time to have that human connection to perhaps have the person see it this other way for the first time and recognize, even if I'm uncomfortable letting these things go, if I don't, the consequences are going to lead to me being homeless, maybe, or sick. Now, that's for someone that doesn't want to keep it. For someone who does want to keep it, I have to ask myself, like, how deep is this trauma? What does that represent? There have been people that have left hazards of different kinds between their bed and the bedroom door because of having been attacked at night as a child. And so having different you know, obstacles like that gives them a sense of safety. Who's going to want to come in here if it's foul? If someone says, it helps me feel safer. We have to look at other ways to feel safer and understand the the pros and cons of of those. I have lived experience with this. I also have professional experience in using my, you know, what I've been through to, to try to help people. And I know I can't save people. That's not my job. I'm responsible for offering the intervention, but the outcome is not on me. And so sometimes I have to sort of like accept that. On the other hand, I never give up because I always assume this is the person that got over it. This is the person that made it.
0: I think that so many people listening wonder about themselves, right? Where do I fall? on the spectrum. I know from personal experience that this is something that I struggle with in a in a different way of organization and giving everything a home and and just my personal accumulation of stuff. It's definitely not where I want it to be. But how do I know? How does one know, am I messy or is this is this
1: a diagnosable problem? So it is a totally diagnosable problem. You know, I think rather than a spectrum, maybe it's only like you do or you don't have it and everything else else is a part of the natural human experience, but it's not actually something that you're going to be struggling with forever. You know, it's like feeling really down after losing a loved one versus experiencing chronic depression there's something specific once you clean up and learn how you're like oh i'm good now so the kind of person that you're talking about the professional organizers have a wonderful sort of definition chronic disorganization right so an individual without intervention without help they will always revert back to clutter it's like we miss that day in school or something when they handed out neatness you know and so that's pretty common that people struggle with that. And it often gets misidentified as hoarding disorder because there's a lot of stuff and it's chaotic. But that person, they have some skills to learn. They're not attached to the items in an unhealthy way or something. They just don't know where to put them. And so they need some help learning that. It's really about the attachment. So even if it's organized, it can be too much. Those neatly stacked items, even if they're categorized and clean and everything, they start to create the same hazards Tripping hazards, fire hazards, financial hazards, social hazards, all of these different things. So it doesn't come down to neatness and organization. It goes right back to the attachment to those things. That's always the first question I ask is about the person's relationship to their items. Are they attached to them or they just don't know what to do with them Uh, and kind of go from there?
0: Yeah, that's a great explanation. And I personally, as you know, I talked about on the podcast, hiring a, a team of organizers for myself as a gift to myself uh, last summer. And it was an incredible experience, very eye-opening. And what I learned was that I spent most of my teenage years and my young kid years in trauma, chaos, and addiction. And that's those were my focuses when I was a kid, when I was supposed to be learning how to do the other things. I didn't learn how to cook i didn't learn how to clean i didn't basically didn't learn how to take care of myself i have been trying to make up for that for a very long time and like kind of throwing things together like learning hodgepodge of of skills and so I decided to hire this group and and do that and my experience is that I don't know where to put a lot of things like that's or which to keep or whatever but one experience I had that I had that totally blindsided me was when we were cleaning out my closet I had all these clothes so I thought that I would maybe have more emotion around the fact that I had all these different sizes is because I struggle with uh, an eating disorder. And so I was was like, that's going to be the thing. That wasn't it. I had all these clothes from my 20s of going out clothes, basically of costumes and really expensive heels and all this stuff and stuff that I don't want to wear anymore. But when we took them out and I had the, the, you know, we said, where would you wear these? Are you going to wear these? When's the last time you, you know, all those questions, right? All they came out as you expected. No, I wouldn't wear them. I can't think of a place and I haven't worn them in five years, 10 years, whatever. Thing that happened when we got rid of them, when we actually put them in the bag and we removed them was this experience that I was never going to be that young again. Like that, that part of my life was actually over. And even though I love my life and my kids and the Life that I have. And I don't want, I would be silly wearing a see through sequin butterfly top, you know, I have no word. And I'd want to go to bed at 7 p.m. instead of going to the rave. There was something about the fact about acknowledging and about moving that stuff out that was like, oh, I really, that part of my life is really over. And they left and I cried. I fully broke down and started crying. And I could not believe how painful that was of like, oh, that's really like that part of my life is really over. I had no idea that that was in there. None at all whatsoever. And so I felt that piece of connection to the people who are putting meaning into those things or like trying to say goodbye to things or, or people, grief, you know, death, things like that. I, I'm just saying goodbye to my 20s. <laughs> Right. That's you know, <laughs> you know, that's and but other people are saying goodbye to much more intense things. And it gave me a lot of compassion and understanding that they may not even know why they're doing those things because I sure
1: did not. That's precisely what I'm talking about with that category of things that don't spark joy. They actually, you might think, oh, they remind me of a good time, but letting them go actually is an indicator that those good times are gone, even if they were self-destructive times, even if they were not times I'd want to live over, there was some part of it that I'm having to say goodbye to. So that is specifically why I think that question of why am I keeping these things? That's a question I ask myself that professional organizers intentionally don't ask. They're there to ask you why you would keep it. They understand that it's up to a therapist or a peer supporter to say, why have you? if you don't need it, et cetera, et cetera. So they will stay on that side of the the help, right? They're practical. They're above the surface. It's when we talk to someone on a different level that we can actually explore those other places. But your experience with that is exactly the kind of experience that I'm talking about of, you know, it seemed like silly or frivolous or I don't know why I have those things and this and that, but it's like, oh, hmm that's something that is unresolved or that it is resolved. But I just hadn't gone back and asked myself that question yet. You know, For you, it is probably the equivalent of, I don't know how many hours of therapy to actually come to that same conclusion and go, oh, there's a part of my 20s I'm mourning the loss of. It's like, we're going to let these heels go. Okay, no problem. And then they leave. It's like a kid that scrapes their knee and they haven't started crying yet. And you're like, wait for it. That's what I anticipate happening when people are letting things go, even if they don't seem to be having a hard time. That's why it's so important to have aftercare and support as a part of the long term plan rather than just like folding up the cameras and going home.
0: Stay tuned to hear more in just a moment. Hello, friends. The Courage to Change endorses many paths to recovery. This is why Lion Rock has a promising new treatment method for substance use disorder. Ketamine-assisted psychotherapy. Ketamine-assisted psychotherapy is a progressive new treatment plan that uses ketamine in a supervised setting that assists in both substance use disorder recovery and continued recovery. The NIH concludes that ketamine is a useful tool to help people struggling with substance use disorders, and it can facilitate facilitate abstinence across multiple types of abuse disorders. It is also extremely effective in treating anxiety and PTSD when it's paired with psychotherapy. Lionrock's unique approach of pairing licensed counselors with the medication is the true success here when treating substance use disorder. Most other companies are simply sending ketamine to their clients and offering guides. Lion Rock treats the whole person, and this new treatment option for substance use disorder recovery and continued recovery continues to show great promise. So, if you are interested in Lion Rock's ketamine assisted psychotherapy program and you want to learn more, go to lionrockrecovery.com. Under programs, scroll down to the ketamine assisted psychotherapy tab. Now, back to the show. What about extreme shame where you've? I mean, I know this where like I haven't called someone in a while and then I don't call them because I feel embarrassed that I haven't called them. And so I th- now I don't call them for long, you know, or whatever. <laughs> Obviously, it's a silly example, but I can imagine that if one day I started pooping in a bucket because whatever the reason is, and a week later, now I have a week's worth of human waste, I'm like, well, I can't call anyone over. I've already done this. You know, now, now that, now I have a shame based situation that my, My brain is like, well, you can't. Now you're stuck doing this for the rest of your life. And I would imagine that people get into that like, well, now my house is like this and I
1: can't tell anyone. Big time. The shame is real. And a lot of that is based on cultural perception because of the exploitative TV shows, especially. It's like, I've seen what happens to those people. They're going to come in and be like, oh, you're a dirty hoarder or something like that. And so a lot of it does go back to that. Imagine, imagine, imagine if on one of those shows, they're just like, this must be really hard. We're totally going to help you out. We know it's not the way you want it and we're not here to blame you. We're just here to help you. That would be a very different experience if that's what you expected to come to your house rather than being like, what is wrong with you? Part of it crosses over into the, I'd rather die. Than have people know this about me and actually maybe start to wish for a disaster of some sort. And people will say, I know it's weird. I hope you don't think differently of me. But sometimes I just wish that my house would flood or there'd be a fire or an earthquake or a tornado. Like I'm actually jealous of people when I see their homes like scattered on TV but I can't let one piece of junk mail go. There's a sense of helplessness, a sense of shame that comes from it. But when you witness other people's recovery, you go, well, they had a really hard time letting a piece of junk mail go too. And then they shredded it. Maybe I can. So I think that before inviting help over, even if it feels shameful, the way we frame it ourselves to say, this is what you're going to find when you come here. And This is really hard. It's it's actually really hard to even tell you about it. But that's one of the things I'm going to need help with. If that was the example people saw, it would be a different story, I think.
0: Talk to me about families either children or families that either grow up in the situation and or want to help a loved one who's struggling with some of these behaviors.
1: Yeah. It's a great subtopic here because like I was saying before, you've got three to 5% of the people, the people that care about them are impacted too. There is a generational connection that this is something that tends to be a trait that's passed down in a family. I can see examples of it in in my prior generations. And, and I remember them. Other challenges that family members may have had, I wasn't aware of because that was like what the adults talked about. But you can't hide hoarding disorder. It's right there. And people respond to it differently. And this is where I think it's important to consider too, that there are comorbidities. There are other things that people, parents that are struggling with stuff, also are dealing with half report a form of trauma, half report, a diagnosis of depression, a third with anxiety, a third with OCD, a third with ADHD. You've got a lot of people struggling with a lot of things. The experience of maybe a child growing up in that environment, if you took away the stuff, there might still be problems, but the stuff is what people identify with. And so you've got like groups like children of hoarders that will connect through the clutter. I have a feeling if the clutter wasn't there, they'd probably still be part of a different group. But the way Way it impacts the kids growing up, they may not know any other normal. They may just think that's the way it is. But um, if they're going to school with clothes that are smelly because they can't be cleaned, and they're teased, they might be exposed to harmful toxins at home. The food might not be good. All of these things, and the parents may have decided for themselves that that's okay. They're they're going to actually have a more robust immune system because they've been exposed to this and might be able to explain it away. But you can't explain away a bite from a rat in a hardest case scenario. These things do happen and it is a form of neglect. You know, and I feel like, like as a peer, I can say this, that I wouldn't want this judgment from someone else, but it's not my fault but it's my responsibility. I have a responsibility to provide a safe environment for my kids, maybe for my partner, for my elderly parents that might be living with me. never mind me no matter what the reason is my responsibility is to have this certain level of safety. we can imagine that the way those relationships are disrupted and future ones of, of trust of grief and loss, a sense of not being as important as the stuff that the parents are keeping these have a ripple effect that go, into the future, maybe this is a behavior that the kids grow up having themselves, maybe not, but there's a lot of anger and resentment. And I don't think it's misplaced. I think that's totally justifiable. One of the big things that's assumed is that like the family are supposed to be the ones to do the help, training family members to be the the point of support or things like that. But if you think of this as any other form of like neglect or abuse and you're being asked to help the parent that harmed you. That's not fair. So there are people who want to learn more about HD so that they can help a family member. Others don't want to hear anything about it. You know, my partner has put a lot of effort into representing and supporting the family members as, you know, having lived with me all these years, being able to relate that. And there are groups out there that are trying to help the children too. My MYCOPE, Minor Youth Children of, of uh, Hoarding Parents, MYCOPE, My. C O H P, Mycope, and that was started by the Children of Hoarders Group as a way to try to you know create that opportunity for support amongst the youngsters.
0: What was the moment or the bottom that you experienced that led you to
1: make a change? That did come from my partner saying you really need to make some decisions about about your stuff. It was I think the the shorthand for that in like media was she gave me an ultimatum. It was. Not just an ultimatum, it was more about like making room for her and making some decisions about those priorities. So that moment for me was like, yeah, I knew I had a stuff problem. I didn't like having clutter. I can't stand clutter. I love neatness (laughs) and organization. Like That makes me happy. And I'm fairly good at it, but it's just like saying I'm a fairly happy person, but this depression thing gets in the way. People say you should just smile. It's like, yeah, you know, but it was something that I wanted to change too. So it wasn't like I was being forced to do something I didn't already want. That I don't think I would have had success with, but that was important enough to address it. And I was fortunate enough to have the stars aligned. I happen to live just a few miles away from Dr. Randy Frost, who's retired from Smith College, but he's really the the father of hoarding disorder field. My partner, Becca, she went to Smith College and he was one of her professors. And when we were working at the same agency, she saw in the company newsletter, do you have a problem with stuff? There's a study that's aiming to work on an intervention to help people. I came home from work one day and she had that number and the phone. It was basically like, I need you to make this call. I did. I made that call. And that was in 2005. And it led me to allowing one sentimental shirt to go. I let one thing go. And it was like another five years before I let another thing go because there was no follow-up. It was just to see if telling the story of an item made it more likely that somebody could let something go. That was the study. So I helped them answer that question, but I was left with a lot of questions myself. In my work at that mental health agency, I ended up getting invited to join the local, what was called the hoarding task force, just as a mental health counselor just to be there and represent. It was a year on that, as a member of that group, of which Randy Frost was one of the members, for me to admit that like, yeah, I struggle with this too. Because I was worried that they wouldn't talk honestly in front of me now. They'd feel self-conscious because like, I'm one of those people. But I had a sense through getting to know them that like these are good people they're not going to judge me maybe they'll even see this as an asset to have lived experience in the group and sure enough that was the case Randy got funding from Smith College to see if peer led self help group could be effective to this point there had only been therapist led cognitive behavioral therapy groups and he co-authored a book called Buried in Treasures he wanted to see if a, a group could be helpful and I said I'll run all of them. I had let one shirt go and I'm <laughs> now now you're volunteering <laughs> now. Now I'm basically like studying, you know, really hard so that I can teach that tomorrow, you know. And so Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday night, uh, I ran three groups for 13 weeks, took a couple weeks off and ran three more groups for 13 weeks. And the outcomes from that original study showed that a peer-led group could be as effective as a therapist-run group. That was really the taking-off point when Randy and I went to the International OCD Conference to report those outcomes in 2011. From that point forward, it became really an international phenomenon. And Randy and I wrote the facilitator guide together for that group. To this day, it's, it's now one of the, it's considered a best practice. It's evidence-based. It's been studied at Columbia and Stanford. And yeah, so we've got the, the proof that people can help people if we have the education. You can have all the will in the world to change if you don't know how. You're not gonna.
0: That's incredible, and and I love how the universe conspired to get you to where you needed to be, and that that you're part of this group. It's it's incredible, and and also interestingly, how much money municipalities and public services use towards helping people who are struggling. I did not know that either. There's a lot. Of public services that are used with people who struggle with their stuff on a regular basis, and it costs them, It costs the
1: cities a lot of money. It does. And when I joined the Massachusetts statewide hoarding committee. There was a survey done for all the, the towns in the state. And the number one thing that they said they would use extra money for is forced cleanouts uh, and heavy heavy chores if money was made available. And just after a couple of years of introducing the towns and, and training people to run the self-help groups, that became the number one resource that they would invest in. Just a couple of years later, they said, if we had more money, we would we would have more self-help groups. Because the you know, as a preventative measure, because a lot of these things don't cost money. If you can get people helping people, it's not costing the towns anymore.
0: Are there high instances of injury, fire, et cetera, as a result of these homes? Is it is it higher than normal?
1: Yeah. There's a study out of Australia that showed that a third of fire deaths were in homes that were cluttered. And if we think about, okay, so three to 5% of the homes that were on fire had clutter, but a third of all the deaths came out of just those houses, we realize what a huge factor that has been. Much higher rates of people experiencing significant harm, whereas maybe they could have just walked out of the house, but they couldn't. There's some question about whether or not towns should keep a list of which houses have hoarding disorder so that if the firefighters have to respond, they know before they get there. And that leads to some problems. Just think about how quickly records are out of date and how maybe someone moved and there's no clutter in that house anymore. Some of the towns were saying that if there was clutter, the firefighters wouldn't even respond because it was too dangerous, that they would stand in front of a house that was burning down and protect the other houses from igniting, but not go in. We know that paperwork gets behind and out of order. So just imagine that people that could and should be helped aren't. And it also doesn't take into account that people get better.
0: Uh, in a forced cleanout, do people ever just do the entrances, exits, like leave everything and accept
1: things that present a safety issue? Yeah. So that's the harm reduction approach. A forced clean out will just go in and clean out everything. A harm reduction approach is going in and making it safe enough, doing the least amount of change necessary to pass safety code. And that's really preferable for most people. Every time you work with someone, you have new insights, things that you had never thought of before. And there was one individual I was working with and I was like, all we have to do, you know, and Eric was like, all we have to do is just move these things so that You can get through it and no problem. You don't have to throw it away or anything. We just need to move it. And their concern was that there were different parts to them that were responsible for making the decision about where those things were in the first place. And that different parts of them might not agree with where it's being moved to, and it might lead to more internal strife. Then we're kind of shifting gears and talking about it not being a practical challenge, but a really personal trauma-based challenge of having to approach it differently so that it wasn't a scary experience. That became like, now that we know that, how are we going to convey to all the parts of you that? you can trust your own judgment and find the things that were moved. So we came up with a really specific organizing system where we were writing what was on the boxes and things like that so that any part of her would be able to understand that. So that's why I asked that question, like, why are these things where they are? Not just your relationship to what they are, but where they are matters too.
0: It sounds like she struggled with DID or formerly multiple personality. That's really interesting. Right. So the different personalities now you have this other complication. Wow.
1: Yeah. It was challenging. She did it, you know? Yeah. 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 Progress. Progress. Yeah, totally. For people who
0: maybe don't have that at their fingertips, what do you suggest their first step should be in terms of, okay, I want to I find out if I have a problem with stuff. What do I do?
1: I think that, and that's sort of what, you know, your experience of kind of logging on and, and trying to find out some information. Uh, it's important to know the sources and what's been sort of, what is evidence-based, what's current. I would say that uh, for one, my website, mutual support.com is one place to go. You know, we've got lots and lots of helpful books and websites and articles that are evidence based, strengths based peer-informed for people to get really clinically sound information and video links as well. And those will lead to more resources that are of that sort of nature as well. The literature has really evolved to include more of the, the peer experience. And so I think that our website is a good place to start. And we've just tried to kind of compile the best of the best from where we can find it. Now there are peer groups forming online that are supporting each other. And that's one of, that's like a dream come true to see people like graduate out of Buried and Treasures groups and form their own community. Now there's really sort of a critical mass of people that I feel like if I stepped away from it, it won't go away. There's enough people helping each other that like that mission is accomplished. There's a a group on Facebook called the Clutter Movement. And for people that are in recovery or wondering about it, I think that's a a worthwhile group to ask to be accepted into. So it's a private group. You have to explain why you want to join it. And for people that are really into social media, that might be a place to go. The CopelandCenter.com is a good place to go for wellness recovery action plan. I wrote a version of it wrapped for reducing clutter. So that's a purely peer led group. We never use the language of hoarding disorder, just struggling with too many things. And if our lifestyle is helping that or actually making it worse.
0: Absolutely. And, and sometimes, you know, I like to say, say, like, oh, I have disordered eating, right? Instead of an eating disorder, I have disordered eating. Or, you know, I'll say to people who are like, I'm not really willing to say I'm an alcoholic, but, but I have a problem with alcohol. You know, there's lots of ways to reframe something that makes it feel more accurate to to what's happening. Well, the work that you're doing is incredible, and I, I think it's so needed and and amazing to learn about new journeys for people and different ways to recover, different language that we can practice using. Uh, just giving an insight into some of the things that the general population is seeing and and maybe judging or not understanding. So, your work is is so important. Important And and incredible that you came up with the facilitator guide and all of that. It's really, really impressive and and a great contribution.
1: Well, thank you. I'm standing on the shoulders of giants. I think there's a sort of a legacy of people helping people. And I'm proud to sort of be in that current.
0: Well, thank you so much for coming on here and talking to me about this. It's really important. Where can people find you and your organization?
1: Mutual-support.com is the website. And um, there's a way to reach me through there.
0: Awesome. Well, that will be all in the show notes. And uh, I'm really grateful. Thank you so much, Lee.
1: Likewise. Thank you.
2: Scott. That was incredible. It was. It was. You know, I, this is, you kind of mentioned in the intro, but it's like, this is one of those things where I think maybe because it gets, I don't know, blown up and turned into a caricature, right? Like there's the shows, there's all these sorts of things that I think it creates distance between that real person.
0: So both you and Lee brought up this idea that there's negative effects of the show called Orders. And I wonder if that's entirely true, because my curiosity, my fascination with that show and with the crime scene cleaning, you know, Instagram accounts and things like that has made me curious enough to explore the topic, which has led me to compassion and empathy. I would not have been exposed to those things had I not seen them in the media. So on the one hand, I totally get it. They're absolutely exploiting the topic. And, And on the other hand, I think that it's hard to see how I would be exposed to this in any other way. And I'm grateful that I have been exposed to it because the... Explanation about the, I mean, I, I literally almost burst into tears. The explanation about the, the woman with the broken hip who couldn't, that is not what I would think about. Like that is, that never crossed my mind that someone had a disability. That changes everything about the situation, at least in my head. Had I not had that curiosity sparked by the exploitation, yes, I probably would not have. Made it all the way to that information, and then had the opportunity to share that with others.
2: Yeah, I th- think that's a fair point. There is, it's such an intimate thing. Like what's happening in someone's home isn't something that you normally see. Like you're not normally privy to that, and especially someone as Lee mentioned, like you might have a lot of shame around this. Yeah like you're doubly not unless you're responding to something or you're having to help a you know loved one who's sick or injured or something like that. Like aside from that, you're probably not going to get a, an intimate experience with that. So it's sort of like, I think that's an interesting point and a thought is just like, they're doing a job. They're like, they're creating ratings and they're sensationalizing things and there's problems with that. But there's also, there is that piece where it's like, there's no understanding. I mean, even on a small scale, I feel like that shows some of the scale at which it's happening on like it's it's happening in a significant enough level that they have multiple seasons of a tv show right. but also just that that intimate look into somebody's life that you're not going to get yeah that, yeah i mean
0: i totally get, i mean they do the same thing with the show intervention and you know i i have trouble watching that show the show called hoarders they have a therapist on site with them that comes and you know Talks to the person, and part of what they do as same thing with intervention. As a result of exploiting them, as they offer them services. Again, it's one of those things where you know it's it serves a purpose, even though it's kind of icky. I think that what Lee is doing is just incredible. What he's done, particularly in the space of creating the facilitator's guide for other peers to support one another and talking about this, talking about his recovery as someone who struggles with hoarding disorder. I don't hear a lot of people talk about that with the prevalence of this struggle. I am surprised that we don't hear more about
2: it I think just as we talk about it in many different episodes it's the shame piece right it's that's the thing that's that's in the way and it's and think about like is there a more private place where you can hide your secret shame than in your home and when it's like all wrapped up in that like in many of those instances I'm not ever forced into a situation in which I have to reveal this thing and so you just see this kind of like it's just compounding this this effect and the More that that happens, the more shame that comes with it, and the less likely that people are to actually go and get help.
0: You know, I what what fascinates me also is the the attachment to things and the meaning, and how throwing something away feels like throwing away the meaning and the memory. That was one of the pieces of the disorder, and that's really fascinating to me and plays into my experience with you know the the clothes and the shoes from you know, my twenties where I, those weren't, they didn't represent sad experiences for me. So I didn't put, make the connection that that would be a sad experience because that they represented a great time. I had a fantastic time in my twenties, but it represents like the end of something, which that part is emotional. Like, wow, like that's just, it's just done. Like that's just done. And how I responded to that. And then you just, I mean, then you just compound that by, a gazillion with major trauma and all these other things and the disabilities piece and the inability to afford things like that that really, that hurts my heart.
2: You know, that's a factor that changes it for you in your mind, right? Yeah, it does. And, and, but there, there are people who don't have that physical manifestation, but it's just as, it's just as painful happening internally. And it's just like a million things we talk about on this show where it's like, because you can't see it, it's different. And I'm not disagreeing. And I'm doing it too. No, you're right. Uh, It's like,
0: I have that Same, like when he was saying how this woman needed a hip surgery that she couldn't get. Sometimes when we have these conversations, I'm just so overwhelmed by the immense wealth that we have in this country and the lack of resources and help for people. Just like the humanity of it. Like that feels so, that shouldn't happen here. It doesn't have to. When I hear stuff like that, it gets, I, I think about... How we care for our elderly, the costs there, the cost of taking care of people, health care, all those things. Like, those are the things that just roll through my mind of like, we should not have a system where someone is stuck in a home going to the, you know.
2: I think the physical ones sometimes feel more fixable or cl- more clearly yes. fixable too. Yes, right? so like it's a like, hip
0: replacement feels right, doable. You go, we yeah. know
2: what this is. We have this. And, and so I think that's that clean nature sometimes makes it seem more more direct or something. But
0: You're right. You're right. Did you relate to any of the things that he talked about?
2: I think my brain it does some of this with things but it's if I've like created a story in my mind where it's like an heirloom or something where it's like it feels like a something with like a history attached to it, in it or like a, a long story to it or something like I lived in Australia and there was this place at the very edge of Bondi Beach there's this place where the like sea comes in and just crashes just giant waves crash over these huge boulders and you can stand like against the boulders, and it literally like shakes you. It's, it hits so hard; it's so unbelievable. It's, it's just this magical place. One day, I I got there, and uh, I found this like tobacco box that had like jumped over the boulders and landed in sort of like this pool. And it was written; it was like an I think it's Chinese, but it was an Asian language. So immediately, my mind went to this like long story, this like journey of this box making it <laughs> all the way there. Right? So yeah. It probably just came from some, you know, Chinese community in Australia, whatever. But in my mind, it is like built into this bigger thing. That was something that was like, it stunk, but I like did all this work to like make it not stink and try to preserve it and whatever. And it's probably trash. But because of the story, sort of just the same way that he's talking about all of it, it's like because I had attached this story to it, because it, it had, because it became a part of that story, then it became more than an object for me. Like then it became then it became the story, and so then like when I open it, that same story comes out. These oftentimes are m- some of my favorite episodes, just where it's just something I don't really know much about, and then mm-hmm, by the end, mm-hmm. not that I know everything, but I go, no, "You're an expert, right?" Now, now I'm a total expert. Like, yes, I yeah. was yep. like, good morning. I was America. like, I guess just sign me up for it. Yeah, Whatever yeah. Yeah, Ted media talk. wants to contact me because I, I'm basically an expert. Yeah.
0: Basically, yeah.
2: It's true. The truth is the truth. You the know, the truth I, is
0: the tr- It's fact. You can't argue with that.
2: Speaking of the truth, the truth is I like this joke more than I should. <laughs> oh, here we go. Ashley, what's Beethoven's favorite fruit?
0: Okay, hold on, let me try. Nope, I don't know. What is it?
2: Banana. <laughs> oh. <laughs> uh, no,
0: oh my God. Oh, <laughs> I'm gonna that is gonna get stuck in my head now.
2: Well, Ashley, anything that you want to leave the people with this week?
0: Yes, I want to say thank you and shout out to Hair62 who left a review on our podcast reviews. Very, very much appreciate you leaving the reviews and anyone else who feels inspired, please go to Apple podcasts and leave us a review. We much appreciate it. I hope you have a wonderful week and we will see you next time. This podcast is sponsored by lionrock.life. Lionrock.life is a diverse and supportive recovery community offering weekly over 70 online peer support meetings, useful recovery information, and entertaining content. Whether you're newly sober, have many years in recovery, or you're recovering from something other than drugs and alcohol, we have space for you. Visit www.lionrock.life today and enter promo code COURAGE for one month of unlimited peer support meetings free. Find the joy in recovery at lionrock.life.